0: Welcome you to Severin and to week six of our series out of Mark's Gospel called The Way of Jesus. The heart behind this series we set on the front end of each week is that there's a tendency in all of us to try to pick and choose the aspects of Jesus that we like and edit out the things that we don't like. And what we're left with is the Jesus that we have created in our image, and he's uh, He's a Jesus that's remarkably easy to follow because he would never cause you to question or rethink any of your most deeply held convictions or beliefs. The problem, however, with the Jesus that we create in our image is that he cannot change us or heal us in any of the ways that we know we need to be healed and changed because he's not real, he's just a projection of ourselves. And so what you and I need more than anything else if we want to be transformed and healed by Jesus, what we need first and foremost is the real Jesus, and that's exactly what we find in Mark's gospel account. So if you were here with us seven days ago, you know that we're, we're sort of in the middle of what you could call a, a um, it's almost like a miniature series within this larger series. And so starting last week for four weeks, what we're looking at is four separate passages that really center on this theme of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And and what we're doing is we're looking at passages that show us what it means that Jesus is Lord and different ways that Jesus is Lord and different areas of life that Jesus is Lord over. Last week, we talked about how Jesus is Lord over man-made religion. Uh, This week, we're looking at a passage that shows us how Jesus is Lord over the storms of our lives. So we're in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. I'll I'll read it, and we'll get into it. It says, On that day when evening had come, Jesus told them, Let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along since he was already in the boat. And other boats were with him. A fierce windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. So they woke him up and said to him, teacher, don't you care that we are going to die? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, silence, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Then he said to them, why are you fearful? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked one another, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. This is God's word. This particular passage in Mark's gospel is all about the power of Jesus. And I want to walk through this from three different angles. And let's look at first how Jesus interacts with the storm Then how Jesus interacts with the disciples, and then we're going to end talking about how you and I can walk through the storms that God is leading us through with even greater confidence and peace and poise than the disciples had here in Mark chapter 4. So with that, uh, let's look first at Jesus' interaction with the storm. This story begins with Jesus and his disciples boating across the Sea of Galilee where they encounter what had to have been a a truly remarkable storm. I say that because the Sea of Galilee sits about 700 feet below sea level, and 30 miles to the north is Mount Hermon, which rises to an elevation of about 9,200 feet. And so what that means is that in a stretch of just 30 miles, you have a 10,000 foot change in elevation. And so there was this constant clashing of cold air coming down from Mount Hermon that was met by the warm air rising from the Sea of Galilee, which meant that the Sea of Galilee historically has seen more than its fair share of sudden, unpredictable, and powerful storms. Now, anybody who had grown up on the Sea of Galilee as these fishermen had had seen those storms. They knew how to navigate those storms. It would have taken a truly remarkable storm to really intimidate these men Uh, And when you see the terror that was brought out in them by this storm, what that leaves us with is the conclusion is that this was something unlike they'd ever experienced before. Because you notice here, they don't say, Teacher, we might die if you don't get up. They say, Teacher, we are going to die. Which means that this was not, there was something different about this storm. And in response to this, Jesus wakes up and he speaks to this storm with remarkable simplicity. Uh the, uh the very first word that Jesus uses, I, I think something gets lost in the English translations. My version of the Bible translates this first word out of Jesus' mouth as silence. Uh, your version might translate the word peace. But the word that Jesus uses is actually a lot more informal than that because that sounds very proper. That sounds very... I don't know, like almost something you'd hear from like a Gandalf kind of thing. But the word that Jesus, I'm just being honest, but the word that Jesus, I try to always be honest when I preach, important side note, but the word that Jesus uses here, if you, if you were to, probably the most accurate way to translate this Greek word is hush. Jesus, here's what happens. He, he wakes up from this storm, or if he wakes up from his sleep, he rubs his eyes and he speaks to a hurricane and basically says, hush up. That is the way that a parent talks to a child throwing a temper tantrum. But that's the way that Jesus spoke to a hurricane. And the hurricane listened. So Jesus just basically grounded a hurricane and sent it to its room, put it on timeout. And the Bible tells us that two, two distinct things happen. This might sound like redundancy at first, but it's not. Two, there were two effects after Jesus spoke. It says the wind ceased and there was great calm. That means not only did the wind die down immediately, but the Sea of Galilee became like glass. Now to understand the significance of this miracle, and this is usually the case when we're reading stories in the Bible, the the first thing we have to do is try to read this story, see this story through the lens of Mark's original readers. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but but in um, Hebrew imagery and biblical symbolism and really um, almost all ancient cultures thought this way, The sea, Uh, the sea was considered to be the source of chaos and terror and all of these unpredictable, unmanageable, uncontrollable forces in the world. Uh, I just recently discovered this. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. This detail just popped out to me, but if you go all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21, when John is describing the new creation, he actually says the sea will be no more, which... Just to be perfectly transparent with you, that actually made me a little sad the first time that I read it. Got one in the house. Thank you. Uh, what, I'm, what I'm confessing to you is your pastor was sad when he read what heaven is going to be like. All right. I'm assuming this is a safe place to talk about these things. Because I like watching the sun rise and set on the water, and I was hoping to maybe be able to swim in the new creation. But I got good news Pretty much every commentator agrees that that does not literally mean that there will be no bodies of water in the new creation. What it's getting across is this idea that there will no longer be in the new creation, which once God finishes the work that he began on the cross and the resurrection in Jesus Christ, when he has finished healing his creation of everything that sin has done to it, that means that there's going to no longer be what the sea represented for ancient people and what the sea represented for Mark, the writer of this account, for, for these disciples that day on Galilee, for all the first readers of this account, it represented the most powerful, chaotic, terrifying forces of this world that we're all at the mercy of. And it's funny, I was thinking, you know, you can hear that and say, I mean, that's, that's interesting how these pre-scientific ancient people thought. But it, here we are 2,000 years later. This is interesting. Here we are 2,000 years later, living in a part of the world that Mark didn't even know existed during his day. And if we were, to, if we were to, to reach, if we could reach back in time and talk to Mark about what life is like now, I don't even know how we could describe the vast majority of the things we experience on a day-to-day basis because of our technological breakthroughs. Like, I don't know how you'd explain the Internet to Mark or satellites or, you know, whatever, whatever a day in the life of a modern person is like. But here we are 2,000 years later, and we do not have, we do not have a better answer to a powerful storm at sea than Mark did 2,000 years ago. We have meteorologists that are hilariously terrible at predicting storms. That's not a shot against meteorologists. That's just a recognition that storms are still exactly as unpredictable as they were 2,000 years ago. And you know what our game plan is when, it, when a powerful storm comes out of the sea and hits land? You know what our game plan is? Run. That's it evacuate, get out of Dodge, and wait for the storm to do whatever the storm wants to do. And when it's done, we we go back and we try to to pick up the pieces. My point is, for Jesus to put this storm and the sea itself in its place, like a parent grounding a petulant toddler, that's, that's Jesus in no uncertain terms exercising power that those disciples knew belonged exclusively to God. And you notice when Jesus spoke to this storm, he didn't call on a higher power. He didn't invoke the name of of some higher authority. He didn't didn't, uh, stand on somebody else's credentials. He just woke up, rubbed the sleep out of his eyes, and said, hush up. And so the disciples, what was happening, and this is really, I I think it's safe to say this is the first time that this was really starting to dawn on the disciples, this particular miracle. You go through the Old Testament, a lot of prophets had done things like Jesus had done up to this point. But what they realized that day when they saw Jesus put that storm and the sea itself in its place, what they realized is Jesus didn't call on a higher power because he was the higher power it realized the highest power in the universe was in that boat with them. That's what, that's what Jesus' interaction with this storm shows us. Now, the reason I thought this was worth taking the time to walk through is because a lot of people, specifically in our culture, and I've, I've been throwing this caveat around a lot, but I'll say it again. Even if you don't think like this, I can almost guarantee you the people that you know and love do, a lot of people approach Jesus with what you could call a, um, um, a mild admiration. You know, um, there's kind of this interesting dichotomy in our culture where you have people who, who they're into the idea of spirituality. They hate the idea of religion. But what that leaves a lot of people with is they're okay with Jesus. J- they just don't want to go to an extreme with Jesus. Meaning a lot of modern people will look at, at Jesus... You know, he fed the hungry, that's great. He healed the sick, that's great. He, he stood up for the little guy and he went toe-to-toe with those hypocritical religious leaders. And they say, yeah, I like Jesus. I think, you know, Jesus is, is great. But, you know, you can't expect people with a scientific understanding of the universe to seriously take his claims to divinity. I mean, I'm not going to go that far with them. I did a... Um did a uh, wedding out in Colorado in October, and I remember after the ceremony, a woman came up to me with some questions about things she heard me say about Jesus during the ceremony. And she asked what I thought happened to people who subscribe to other belief systems, and uh, and that led to a talk about the exclusivity of Jesus. And where the conversation ended, she said that she thought Jesus was a great example. Her exact words: she said, "He is definitely a Messiah. He's a Messiah." Just like, you know, history produced tons of Messiahs that maybe had a little bit, I don't know, they were slightly more in tune with God and they sort of helped reflect a little bit more of God's light and give us a little bit more of an inspirational angle on what it means to live the good life. She liked him. She admired him. And what I think is really interesting is when you read all four gospel accounts, you'll find that almost nobody stayed there. What th- this picture that's perpetually painted for us through the gospels, but also in the book of Acts, and I would say even in the last 2,000 years of church history is that when, when a human heart begins to truly understand who Jesus is, when a human heart begins to spend enough time with Jesus or around Jesus to see and understand who he is, who he claims to be, what, is, what claims he's really making, to the degree that you understand that, to that degree you're pushed to one end of a spectrum. And we, we, we saw the beginning of it last week if you were here. Pharisees were angry enough to want him dead. Pharisees were so enamored with him that they died, pardon me, fishermen were so enamored with him that they were willing to die for him. What you have all through the gospel accounts is people are either plotting together to figure out how to murder him or they're falling at his feet in order to worship him. And you see that, of course, come to a head at the end of Jesus' life at the crucifixion. And what the Bible's showing us there is that when a human heart truly sees Jesus, Not whatever we think Jesus is, not the character caricature of Jesus we make up in our own mind, but when a human heart really begins to move closer in proximity to Jesus, at the end of the day, you're really just left with two options. You put him on a throne or you put him on a cross. I found this quote uh, a little while ago. This is by a theologian, N.T. Wright. Here's how he said it. How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh? that life itself became life and walked in our midst. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It's either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world, or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play-acting. And here's how I bottom-lined it. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. And I share this quote to say that this passage is recorded in, in Mark's Gospel, so that whatever else we did with Jesus, we would not live in this shallow world in between. Whatever else the disciples had figured out at the end of that boat ride in Mark 4, they knew we're going to have to make up our minds about who Jesus is here. But there's no, I, I kind of like him. He just really doesn't give you that option. So that's, that's Jesus' interaction with the storm. And actually, before I move on, I think it's important to point out, this is the part of Jesus that I think generally we like. You know, what what we've talked about so far is is Jesus is, is this impossibly powerful divine being that in just a moment's notice, he can still, he can put to rest the most intimidating, terrifying, powerful storms in your life. We like that. But what Mark goes on to show us about Jesus is something that is no less necessary for us to see. But at least for the disciples that day, it's deeply unsettling. So that's Jesus' interaction with the storm. Now let's turn and look at Jesus' interaction with the disciples. I don't know if you caught this, but one of the things that makes this particular miracle stand out from every other miracle Jesus performed, and I would say not, not even every miracle is, is like that. Like There's a lot of different healing miracles Jesus did that have a lot of similarities. There's a lot of of, um, you know, feeding miracles Jesus did that have similarities. But one thing that makes this miracle stand out from everything else that Jesus did as recorded in all four Gospels is the effect that it had on the disciples. If if you noticed here, Mark tells us, and it's almost comedic, but I, I don't think it's meant to be funny. I think it's supposed to be ironic. It's supposed to make us think. During this storm before Jesus calms it, so in the middle of the storm, we're told that the disciples were fearful. That word means exactly what you think it would mean. Jesus even says that. You were fearful in the middle of the storm. But after Jesus calms the storm, Mark tells us the disciples went from being fearful to being terrified. Those words are not synonymous. That's a Greek word that means you are so afraid of something that it puts you to flight. Mark's painting this picture that if the disciples after that, that wind had died down and the sea became like glass and there's no longer anything to fear outside the boat, what Mark is basically painting this picture is is that if the disciples had anywhere to go at that moment, if they were not stuck on that boat with Jesus, they would have found a way to get away from him, at least for the time being. They were truly terrified of him, far more than they were of the storm. There's not a single miracle in all the gospel accounts that had this kind of effect to this degree on these disciples. Not the, you know, the, the water into wine or the even raising people from the dead. None had this kind of effect. So let's ask the question that so often unlocks the meaning of scripture. Why is that? Is it just because they realized how powerful Jesus was? Certainly, I think that's part of it. But what According to what Mark tells us here, there's a whole lot more to it than that, that that was deeply unsettling, at least initially, to the disciples. Let's walk through it. In this passage, we're told that while Jesus was sleeping, waves were spilling into their boat uh, to the point that it was nearly full. So the disciples were legitimately straddling the cusp of death. So they, they call out to Jesus, and you can just hear the, the desperation 2,000 years later. They, the phrase is recorded by Marcus, Teacher, don't you care that we are going to die? Just as a side note, anybody who has attempted to live a life of faith knows where the disciples were coming from there. The disciples are... are here they are, they've, they've given up something, maybe not everything yet, but they've given up a lot to follow Jesus, maybe more than a lot of us have, have, have had to give up or have been asked to give up or however you want to phrase that. They've certainly walked away from careers and families and all that kind of stuff. And they're sitting there thinking, Jesus, there's no way you can say you care about us if, if, if you're letting this happen in our lives. In, in their mind... The presence of this storm and the presence of the love of God are are completely incompatible. Either God loves us and therefore this storm wouldn't be happening, or this storm is happening because God doesn't love us. The two things are so incompatible to them the way they so even despite the fact that we know better theologically they so often are incompatible to us. And so Jesus wakes up and he calms the storm. But let's just take a minute here and look at the interaction between Jesus and the disciples because like everything else that Jesus did, I really think if you can make an effort to read what I'm about to read to you, you know, through the lens of the first readers of this account, you'd never heard this story before, I think this would have really surprised you. I think this would have been deeply confusing to you. Jesus wakes up, he calms the storm, he turns to the disciples, and let's talk about, first off, what he doesn't say. First thing that stands out to me is Jesus is not apologetic for how things went on the boat. Jesus does not say, I'm really sorry that I had to let that happen, but I needed you to see how powerful that storm was so you could see how powerful I am. He's not apologetic. Now maybe that doesn't surprise you, but what really does surprise me is not only is Jesus not apologetic... He's not even empathetic. Meaning Jesus, after he, you know, you you picture the scene. There's this hurricane, it's terrifying. All of it dies down immediately. Jesus doesn't say, you know, I can understand how afraid you all must have been. There's no, you know, like group huddle on the Sea of Galilee. Let's talk about how the hurricane made you feel kind of group therapy session. He doesn't do that. And I'm saying that to say, read through the gospel accounts. There are a lot of interactions that show how meek and how kind, and how gentle and lowly, and how compassionate Jesus is. I'm just saying, this isn't one of those accounts. The specific phrase, as recorded by Mark, that Jesus spoke to the disciples just after he got done speaking to the storm is this. Why are you fearful? Do you still have no faith? Now, however... however. With some things, it's sort of open to, well, maybe he could have meant, I just don't think there's any spin to be put on this. No matter what angle you want to look at it from, what Jesus says to the disciples in no uncertain terms is a rebuke. What Jesus is doing is he's rebuking his disciples in order to smoke out this assumption that they had that would have ruined their lives and kept them from being able to be and do what it was that he was calling them to be and do what Jesus is saying here in this rebuke is that the assumption that a god who loves me would never walk me through a storm is a is a false assumption. And so where I'm going with this is the reason that the disciples were more fearful at the end of this episode than they were even in the middle of the episode is because they were beginning to realize something that everyone who desires to follow the real Jesus of the Bible has to come to terms with. Here it is. It's that Jesus is exactly as unpredictable and, and as unmanageable as the storm. It's one thing to realize that we are all, to a, to a greater degree, I think, than we're comfortable admitting it's one thing to realize that we're all to a large degree at the mercy of the storms of this life, and we are. We are. I mean, all of us, we don't like to talk about it. We, I think most people live their lives, you know, distracting ourselves from it, but we're one doctor's visit away. We're one diagnosis away. We're one medical emergency, one accident, one moment away from being brought to terms with exactly how weak and how frail and how temporary these physical frames we currently inhabit really are. It's one thing to realize that we're at the mercy of the storms of this life. What the disciples were coming to terms with on that boat is they were even more at the mercy of Jesus than they were at the mercy of that storm. And that, more than anything else, is what produced this kind of terror in them. And you you hear that and you think, why would that produce fear in somebody? Hearing that you're at the mercy of Jesus is supposed to be a, a profoundly comforting thing, but just get into the lives of the disciples here. They didn't know the end of the story. They're in Mark chapter 4. They're not in Mark chapter 16. They haven't seen how far Jesus was willing to go. They didn't know the kind of redemption Jesus was willing to provide. And look at how Mark portrays Jesus here. This is what I'm about to share with you is one of a, a myriad of reasons that I'm so convinced that the gospel accounts are actually reliable historical record of of events that actually happened. Because look at how this portrays Jesus. At the beginning of this passage, did you notice whose idea it was to sail across Galilee? It was Jesus's idea that came from his mouth. What does that mean? It means Jesus intentionally led those disciples into that storm. And then Mark tells us he slept through that storm until the disciples are literally getting ready to die in that storm. And then when he wakes up, he rebukes them, making it very clear this was not a misstep on his part. This was a misstep on their part from misunderstanding who he really is. Now, I just got to ask you, if as is sometimes suggested, if Christianity was made up by a group of men in the first century and they're trying to get people to sign up to follow Jesus because that's somehow going to be a power play for them, is this how you would do it? Is this how you would portray Jesus? I think anybody with half a brain for PR would have said, we got to retool this story, gang. Let's talk a little bit more about Jesus turning water into wine or healing sick people or feeding hungry people or raising people from the dead or making us feel good about ourselves. But a Jesus that leads you into the storm and sleeps until the last moment in that storm and rebukes you for thinking that that storm was evidence that he didn't care about you. I'll tell you what Mark is showing us here. Mark is showing us a a Messiah that refuses to be domesticated. He's showing us that Jesus, on the one hand, is the Lord of the storm. He's also the Lord that is likely to lead his followers into a storm. He is showing you that Jesus will allow things to happen in your and my life that we do not understand. He will lead us to places that we would rather not go, and we might never find out why. Why? And I think that all at once, that is at the same time, one of the most terrifying, one of the most unsettling, one of the most disturbing, but also one of the most comforting things about Jesus. And I don't know anybody that, that encapsulated this idea better than a woman named Elizabeth Elliot. In 1976, there was this huge missionary convention, th- uh, thousands of college students in attendance, and Elizabeth Elliot spoke, and she told the story. And I imagine that. I imagine it was just dead silent when she told this story. There were five missionaries. They got together for prayer and and worship one night, and they, they came together and they sang this song, We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. The next morning they woke up. They made contact with an unreached Amazonian tribe with the intent to reach that tribe with the gospel. All five of them were speared to death, no survivors. One of those five missionaries was her husband. His name, you probably heard before, was Jim Elliott. So one evening, five followers of Jesus sing, we rest on thee, our shield and our defender. The next morning, all five of them are dead. And she, like I said, I imagine the room probably felt something like this. And here's what she said after this. They were speared in the course of their obedience. Now, what does that do to your faith? Does it demolish it? A faith that disintegrates is a faith that has not rested in God himself. You've been believing in something less than ultimate, some neat program of how things are supposed to work. You've not recognized God as sovereign in the world and in your life. You've forgotten that we're told to give up all right to ourselves, lose our lives for his sake, present our bodies as a living sacrifice. The word is sacrifice. And she went on and said, God is God. And if he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere but in his will, and that rest is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. And she ended by quoting Evelyn Underhill. And this summarizes the whole thing. If God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshiped. That is maybe the toughest pill for us to swallow in a society as pragmatic as ours where we are so addicted to feeling like we're actually in control of our own lives. You know, the last two stanzas of the poem Invictus, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. There's something so deeply embedded in the human heart. We want to feel like we determine the course of our lives. And what this story is inviting us to consider is that if we can, if we can manage to, to lay our lives down and hand them over to a sovereign God, if we can learn to live in the mystery of a God whose, whose will and whose work and whose timing and whose leading, we will more than likely never understand in this life, if we can do that, that will lead to... So many things, but, but if nothing else, that will lead to peace and rest and health and growth in our souls like nothing else can. The question is, the question is, how on earth do we do that? You know, if we, if we ended the teaching right here, call the worship team back up, then I think the point of this teaching would basically be, if I can quote Journey for a second here, don't stop believing. Just hold on to that feeling, Everybody. The problem is anybody who's tried to follow Jesus for any length of time knows that's just not a button you push. The question is, how on earth can a human being do what is perhaps the most counterintuitive thing imaginable, which is trust that I can give my life to someone else and it's going to work out for me? That question ultimately is the question that this entire story is designed to get us to ask. It's funny, yesterday uh, Katie went to the, the ladies' event, and uh, so I was left at home playing one-on-four. And uh, it was noon, and I really wasn't settled with this teaching. I didn't know exactly how I was going to end it, and I just didn't feel good about it. And so I, um, I tried to do something that I've never tried to do before, institute a quiet time. And It worked. I calmed a storm, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so I put this. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, this means so much to me. Uh, so I put the two kids, down, the two youngest kids, down for naps, and, and Everett and Scarlett were in their book, uh, in their rooms reading. And uh, and I and I opened this and and uh, revisited this teaching in this passage. And I'll tell you, just yesterday, I feel like I, I I saw this story in a way I've never seen it before, and I read this story differently than I ever have. And let me just share with you, maybe this will change in 5, 10, 20 years. I hope it does. But here's the pinnacle of my understanding today. The way that I understand this story, there's basically two ways to read it. You can can look at this story and say, okay, so I guess the point is that, uh, you know, we're all like the disciples, you know, and our lives are full of these sudden and unexpected, powerful, terrifying storms. And man, we need a Savior that can step in at zero hour and calm those storms for us. And isn't it great we have Jesus as that Savior? Let's make sure that he's in the boat with us. Uh, I, that's not what the story's about. If if uh, if I could, if I if I could vote for what the, the the title of this story would be, I think you could call it a tale of two storms. And what's so interesting is Jesus calms one really easily, but he in this passage he does not calm the other. At the beginning of this passage, there's this storm that's happening outside of the disciples, and it's powerful and it's terrifying, but it's nothing for Jesus. Just a word, and it dies down immediately. But there's another storm that takes place that's far more difficult to deal with. It's the storm inside the hearts of the disciples. It's that fear. It's that doubt. It's that wondering, does he really love me? And so what this story is about is the fact, and I think you know what I'm talking about. What this story is about is the fact that, that deep in every single human heart, there is a storm raging that keeps us from being able to walk through the storms of life with any real calmness and peace and confidence and poise. And what that storm is all about is that just like the disciples who were in that boat with Jesus, we just have the hardest time believing that the God of the universe actually loves us. I got my degree from Moody Bible Institute And the most memorable class that I took was a class called the Church in the Community. And I believe it was week four of that class, I was assigned, I think, the coolest assignment that I have ever received in my Christian education. And I still remember verbatim the details of the assignment. Here it is. Help someone who is very poor and write about it. So I called my cousin Mike. He's a county police officer, and I figured he could put me in point me in the right direction, and he said there was this, uh, it's called the Royal Inn. It doesn't even exist anymore. It's shut down and has a new name, but he said there might be some people that were behind on rent over there, and and maybe you could offer to pay it for them. I said, great. So I went to an ATM. I got some money out, and I called up the Royal Inn and got the weirdest feeling when I was on the phone with them. It just felt like something was not right. They were very kind of defensive and... and, um, just dismissive. They got me off the phone as soon as possible. I said, fine, I guess we're going to have to ride over there. So I rode over there. I had Katie and Everett. I don't know if Scarlett was born yet, but I had at least Katie and Everett in the car. And I walked into the front office, cash in hand. And I said, listen, I just want to pay somebody's rent, even if they're not behind, just, you know, basically like a shut up and take my money kind of thing. And they would have no dealings with me. I don't know if they thought I was like an undercover something or whatever, but it was a very weird feeling. So I, I walked out of the front office and I uh, needed to get the assignment done, and so I looked, and I saw in the uh, building adjacent to me on the second-story balcony, there was an old, what looked like an older man walking. So I ran up the steps, and I called up to him, and, and uh, probably in his 50s, maybe, maybe older, he only came up to about my chin, and he was walking with a terrible limp. And, uh, you know, I, I walked up to him and said, hey, I just I would like to give you some money. And he lit up like a Christmas tree. And uh, I felt like, you know, I could leave it there, but that's... Just incomplete to me, and so I, I, I really felt like I should pray for this guy at least. And so uh, I asked him, I said, can I lay hands on you? And when I asked that question, his entire demeanor changed. And he, um, man, I hate this story. He got real nervous, and he sort of uh, like started to flinch and like, um, back away from me. And he asked me if I was going to hurt him. Man, I hate this story. He uh, he thought that I was paying him to beat him. And I apologized and I said, man, that is so not what I meant. I just wanted to pray for you, which I then did. And I got back to, to the car with uh, Katie and Everett and we drove home and, you know, we were all getting emotional. And I um, I walked away from that event and it's, it really bothered me, really wounded me because the impression that it left on me is, man... What kind of life must that man have lived? He he, he must have lived a life that was truly devoid of love because he couldn't even recognize a simple act of love when it was staring him in the face. He he, He just couldn't believe that somebody would be kind to him with no agenda. He probably never had something like that happen before. And looking back on that, I think the reason that that particular incident had such an impact on me is because at least part of me saw myself in that man because the Bible says that we're all just like that man. When you pay attention to what the Bible is communicating about us ever since Genesis chapter 3, cover to cover, is that the problem underneath every other problem we have that makes our problem so difficult to deal with is that at the end of the day, we just, we just have the hardest time believing that God could love somebody like me. That's the storm that needs to be calmed that if it was calmed, if, 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 if something could be done to deal with that storm, to deal with that fear, that doubt, that shame, that guilt, we'd be able to face any storm in life. But the question that is unresolved in this, in this particular passage that we're left wondering is, yeah, Jesus, he can handle the storms outside of us, but what about the storm that no one has ever been able to reach, that no one has ever been able to calm, the storm inside of our hearts? What, if anything, can be done about that? And although you don't find an answer here, you do find a hint that points to the solution. Commentators will tell you with this particular passage that the the key to understanding it is understanding that Mark has deliberately laid out this passage in Mark 4 uh, using language that is a callback, and it's meant to get you to draw a parallel between this incident in Jesus' life and a famous incident in Jonah's life in Jonah chapter 1. And when you compare and contrast the two incidents, you'll find that the coincidence is simply, they can't be a mistake. Because in, in both here in Mark four and in Jonah chapter one, both Jesus and Jonah are on a boat that gets caught into a, in a storm that seems to have a supernatural origin. Their storms are described using nearly identical terms. Both of them are inexplicably asleep in the midst of a storm that clearly no human being would normally be able to sleep through. And so both sleeping prophets are approached by an angry group of sailors. In response to this, in both cases, God intervenes, supernaturally calming the storm, and probably most interestingly, that both groups of sailors experience even greater fear after the storm Is calmed. And the first readers of this account would have said, yeah, I I, I see the similarities there. But the difference is that in Jonah's instant, in, in Jonah chapter one, there comes a point in the storm where he essentially looks at the other sailors and he says, listen, the only way for you all to live is if I die. So you're gonna have to toss me directly into the middle of this storm, which they do. And what's fascinating is that Jesus himself drew a parallel between him and Jonah. In Matthew's gospel account, chapter 12, speaking to the religious leaders, Jesus said, referring to himself, that something greater than Jonah had arrived. And what Jesus meant that day, although the religious leaders had no idea and and the disciples had no idea here in Mark chapter 4, what Jesus meant is that just as Jonah's sacrifice had managed to quiet a storm and calm waves, What Jesus was saying is that what he was coming here to do would quiet all storms and calm every wave so that you and I could walk through even the most terrifying storms of this life with confidence and peace and poise that is only supernaturally available to us. The disciples had no idea how Jesus was going to be able to pull that off, but Calvary shows us how. I'm gonna call the worship team up and we'll close with this. The reason that Jesus could calm the storm for his disciples that day on Galilee, the, the, the only reason Jesus can calm any of our storms is because on the cross, Jesus was thrown into the ultimate storm, the only storm that can actually sink us, that can actually destroy us, which is the storm of God's wrath. And when Jesus hung on the cross, what he was doing, in effect, was sailing directly into that storm headlong, all alone, for us. And to the degree that you and I see Jesus doing that for us and drive that into our lives and make it the foundation of our lives, to that degree, we will gain the ability to walk through the storms that God decides to walk us through with a peace and a confidence and a poise that the disciples did not have access to that day. And I'll tell you, it is so interesting to me that the disciples were never told why Jesus led them through that storm. And that's instructive because anybody that's been on this planet for any length of time knows most of the time when we ask God why, our question remains unanswered. It's my opinion that we will never fully understand anything that God leads us through. We'll never fully understand all that God does in us and through us, through the storms that he leads us through. We will never, on this side of eternity, fully understand why. But what Calvary does, in some ways, is it gives us something even more valuable than why. It tells us why not. Calvary is a, it's a reminder. It's a historical reminder that for whatever... Even if you never know why God led you through the storm that he's leading you through now, you know what the answer cannot be. Calvary says it cannot be that he does not love you. That cannot be the reason. He's gone too far for you and he's paid too high of a price. And so each time we go back to Calvary in the midst of our storm, what we find is the strength to do something that the disciples could not do here. What we find is the tangible evidence that the Lord of the storm does care for us personally. He cares for me personally. He cares for you personally. And even when we feel like the storm is the end, even when we feel like the storm is killing us, even when the storm feels like it's gonna to lead to us perishing, we can know when we go back to Calvary that the Lord of the storm perished for us so that we would never perish in him. John Newton put it best in his famous hymn, and I'll leave you with these words. His love in time passed forbids me to think, he'll leave me at last in troubles to sink. By prayer, let me wrestle and he will perform. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. That's it, that's all, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, thank you that when we, when we come before you, when we hand our lives over to you, either for the first time, or in the middle of whatever storm you're leading us through today, thank you that we come before the Lord of the storm. A savior who is not intimidated by any of the things that we go through, who's able to sleep through them because they command no fear from you. Lord Jesus, every one of us is like the disciples in the sense that our hearts so naturally go back to questioning, do you really care about us? Do you really love us? Are you really there for us? Are we going to die in this? But when that happens, and maybe it's happening for some people this morning on the other side of this teaching, Lord Jesus, please teach us to go back to Calvary to see that you went into the ultimate storm for us. And if you did not abandon us in that storm, there's no way you're going to abandon us in this one. Please teach us to be people that walk through whatever it is you call us to walk through with peace, with poise, and with confidence. Not in who we are, but in who you are. For your glory and our joy, all God's people said, amen.